Hey, well, the fall of Western civilization is continuing on or ahead of schedule. And so with that in mind, I figured it would be a great time to do a podcast. How the hell is everybody? This is the Q-Man. It is October 5th, 2022. And do we have a lot to talk about? Just dumbassery across the board. And with this OPEC news today, I wanted to... uh, go over some of the things that we've talked about in the past, as well as offer some of my new prognostications. But before I do that, let me tell you about the kind folks that make this podcast possible. My many patrons who support me on Patreon, which is where you can go and donate a monthly recurring sum to help support the podcast. And I have a couple of new supporters Uh, this month that I haven't checked in with in a while that I was really stoked to hear from, to be honest with you. First and foremost, my kind friends over at Masterworks. I love these guys. I talked to uh, Scott Lynn, their CEO, I don't know, last year at some point or two years ago, trying to figure out the alternative art market and uh, wound up opening an account with these guys and it's really the only way for the average investor, at least this is just my opinion, this is not uh, this is not beholden to their uh, disclaimer, which I will also pitch after this. But j- just for my personal opinion, it's the only way for like average people that don't have millions of dollars to invest in art, which is you know an alternative asset that works as a great inflation hedge, at least from my experience and what I've been reading about it over the last five six years. Um, and I'm stoked just to be on the platform. I myself invested in a uh, one of the Banksies uh, that's appreciated like over 30% since I uh, invested in it back when I talked to Scott Lynn for the first time. Um, and so I'm really stoked to shout out Masterworks. Um, I'm going to read some of their stuff now that they sent me, now that I gave you the up and up on it. This is uh, Masterworks script. (laughs) I'm not supposed to tell you this. They're getting more than their minutes worth, though. I'll tell you that. Listen, uh, I'm investing in alternatives myself with Masterworks. Already said that. They let you invest in contemporary art, the best of the best, with artists like Picasso, Warhol, Banksy. Uh, There was a Monet on there. Look, people that I'm not even an art world guy, but people that I recognize they buy some fantastic pieces. Uh, Masterworks is engineering all these strategic exits from these alternative, uh, from these pieces of art at the same time that the market is crashing, which I think is an interesting, um, something that sets them apart. Uh, They have posted an average net return of 29% on their six strategic exits, which is fucking not bad considering the market is just getting crushed uh, the S&P was down 20% in August. They sold another painting for 33.1%. If you do the math, and if you're not Kathy Wood, you know that that's a 53.1% swing. Not too bad. Not bad work if you can get it when the market's taking a crap. Anyways, see important regulation A disclosures at masterworks.com slash CD. Uh, they have a wait list right now, but if you use promo code QTR, they will let you skip the wait list and open an account. Which, uh, gotta say, I dig it myself. And uh, as, uh, well, I guess that's it. That's all I'm gonna say for now. Check out my kind friends at Masterworks. Link is in the podcast description. Also, I want to shout out my kind friends and general badasses over at Market Rebellion. 
My buddies John and Pete Najarian, I have spoken at their Market Rebellion conferences before. Well, actually, I sat next to Peter Schiff while he monopolized the conversation is what happened, and I drink champagne. I was drinking champagne at 8 o'clock in the morning. So I was happy to be drinking off my hangover and listening to my favorite economist. I couldn't believe I was sitting on the same fucking stage as him. <laughs> the point is, I know the guys at Market Rebellion very well. John and Pete Najarian, of course, you know from uh, CNBC. Great fucking guys in real life. Uh, wonderful people to hang out with. And then uh, their buddy Dirk. They have another friend of mine that also works with them. Trustworthy guys that I like. Uh, Market Rebellion now is an options trading service that's committed to empowering independent investors to take control of their own financial destiny. That's not bad if you can deliver that. What do you say? <laughs> John and Pete Najarian, you guys know them. I know them. Former floor traders, all around badasses. Uh, I'll tell you some secrets about John and uh, what's been going on with him, but I'm going to leave it to him because I'm going to bring him on the podcast. I don't want to say any shit that, uh, that he wouldn't want me to say. Uh, look, Market Rebellion offers trade ideas, education, coaching, uh, technical analysis, momentum trading, unusual options activity. You can visit their link in my podcast description. Love these guys at Market Rebellion. If you're looking for a trading community to check out, highly recommend them. And uh, it's not bullshit. I know John and Pete in real life. Nice fucking dudes. I've drank a beer with them and... I've drank beers alone. <laughs> well, technically, I'm with you guys, so it's not alone. This podcast is also brought to you by my friends over at JM Bullion, my exclusive gold and silver providers. Love JM Bullion. Been buying my gold and silver exclusively from them since they've been a supporter of the podcast. Tried them out first, decided I liked it, then went to them and said, hey, we should work together. This way, I was ensuring that I was not bringing you a bullshit uh, you know, gold or silver service. I wanted to make sure the shit was good. And uh, I love the guys over at JM Bullion. You can email Laura, L-A-U-R-A, at jmbullion.com. She would be happy to help you out with anything you need. Gold and silver bullion, inventory, pricing, any questions you may have if you've never ordered bullion through the mail before. Wonderful people at JM Bullion. That link is also in my um, podcast description. But just email Laura, Laura at jmbullion.com. Tell her the Q-Man sent you. Tell her the Q-Man cracked a cold one and dropped her email. This podcast also brought to you by my friends over at Doomberg, my favorite substack. These guys are energy and commodities experts that look at the markets through a skeptical lens. I love reading everything they put out. They put something out this morning. I haven't read it yet, but it is on my list tonight of things to read, along with the 72-page report from Chess.com as to why Hans Niemann uh, is a fucking cheater, apparently. Uh, aside from that, this podcast is also brought to you by my buddy George Gammon over at Rebel Capitalist Pro. George and Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh helping you make sense of a world gone mad and preserve your wealth from the elites and the central banks that are helping your money erode away at a record pace right now with inflation globally. George's service and the forums over there at Rebel Capitalist Pro, I love those links in the podcast description. And finally, last but certainly not least, my kind friend Sang Lucci and Wall Street Jesus over at the Steam Room, the original Unusual Options Activity Gangsters. Sang Lucci and Wall Street Jesus, the Steam Room is a wonderful piece of software and a great community. Uh, these guys have been zoned in on the world of options and tracking money coming, in, coming into the options market 
which can oftentimes help telegraph moves in the equities market. They've been doing it for a decade, just past my 10-year anniversary that I've known Lucci and that I've been on FinTwit. And so give them a shout. Any of these guys will help you try their service, whatever you want. Get in touch with them. Just tell them you heard it from me, and I said you want a trial, you want you know a no bullshit, anybody. Call fucking Market Rebellion, say I want to talk to John Nigerian directly. Chris Irons sent me, and I want to try the platform. Let me talk to Dr. J, and uh, I want to see if we can fuck up his uh, inbox a little bit there. <laughs> Sorry, John. Love all these guys, though. Love all of them. Love the Nigerians. Have a Masterworks account. Love Sang Lucci. Love George Gammon. Love Doomberg. So I'm not just kissing ass. I am kissing ass, but I come by it honestly. It's okay. I'm not an investment advisor. This is not investment advice. I hold no licenses, no registrations, etc., etc. Do your research elsewhere. Do not listen to anything that I say. And this podcast has a three-drink minimum. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a lot of shit to talk about today, and I don't just mean the first nine minutes of the podcast that we just went through. <laughs> Good one, huh? Good night, everybody. Thank you all very much. Seriously, uh, OPEC came out and basically shit on President Biden today. So let's talk about that first and foremost while I take a sip here. It's not easy doing uh, nine minutes of shout outs. It's also not easy thinking of the other, you know, hours worth of shit that I'm going to say. But today, today's going to come by it easy because I've been walking around all day just like I got to put this, I got to put these thoughts down somewhere. I either have to do a podcast or I got to write an article. But I got up at like 4 a.m. this morning and I wrote an article uh, for my Substack this morning. So I was like, you know what, I'm going to do a podcast and I'll drop that tomorrow. So we're mixing up the content a little bit. And I guess first, I'm going to start by talking about my article this morning, which is uh, behind the paywall, but I'm going to give you the gist of it. If you are not a paid subscriber to my Substack yet, uh, that's okay, because here's I'll give you a little uh, lowdown, and if you like it, maybe you can head on over there, and if not, that's cool too. It's a very low-pressure situation. The article was called The Illusion of Safety, and I wrote about the first two days of trading this week, which now looks like it's turning into a third day, or as the market has closed already, is a third day, uh, with the market ripping higher on Monday, ripping higher on Tuesday, and then this huge intraday reversal today, where the market was down like fucking 2%, and it battled all the way back to close green, I think. Let me see. Did it close green today? I think it did. No, it came very close. Uh, but it came back. All right, so it finished down 20 bips. But uh, so it, it came back about 1.8% from its lows during the day today. And, you know, look, the point of my article this morning, just to stop the FOMO for a second, the fear of missing out, the momentum. And, you know, the things that were driving the market higher Monday and Tuesday, the short squeezes, everybody thinking, oh, my God, the bottom is finally in. And let's just stop and have a reality check here for a second. You know, what I wrote about today was the fact that, look, the Dow posted 1,500 points between Friday's close and Tuesday's close, right? It went from like a 28,000 handle to a 30,000 handle in fucking two days and stocks ripped. 
Um, and the point that I wanted to make, the first point I wanted to make today was just to take caution. And let's just put some things in perspective, okay? First off, we are in the middle of a bear market, okay? There has been heightened volatility. The heightened volatility has come as a result of the Fed raising interest rates and everybody kind of being uncertain as to whether or not we're going to crash into this wall of uh, debt and interest expense and whether that's going to pressure the economy and whether or not pressuring the economy is a good or a bad thing at this point. Um, and what the Fed is going to do going forward. So there's a lot of unknowns up in the air. And when they are are unknowns up in the air, things get volatile. And you can tell, you know, obviously because the VIX goes up, right? And so as you see the VIX rise, the cost of options beefs up also too because options start to price in. Even if you look at something like the options just on the SPY, the options start to price in a bigger move uh, than had been there prior. So now if you if you go to put on a straddle, which is essentially you pick a strike price and you want to buy the call and the put at that strike price. So if you buy an at-the-money strike on like the QQQ right now on the NASDAQ, which is, I don't know, it's somewhere like 285 you buy the 285 call for whatever, three dollars and you can buy the 285 put for three dollars your total cost is six dollars which means that what you're betting is that the Qs are going to move six percent or six dollars rather in either direction uh which is i don't know about two and a half or three percent move and what the options are pricing in is they're pricing in that the market is going to move that much in either direction so that's a good way to tell um, that's like a basic method of telling how the market is pricing either an index or an equity. A lot of times you'll hear people on TV talk about, well, Facebook, you know, the options market is pricing in a 10% move on Facebook for earnings. And you'll see if Facebook's at uh, $150 a share, a at-the-money call will cost you $750, and at-the-money put will cost you $750. You mash them together, you want to buy them both, it's going to cost you $15. $15 is 10% of $150. In order to make money, the stock needs to go on your options trade. The stock would need to go below $135 or above $165. Otherwise, you're going to lose money. And that is how the option market prices in volatility. Kind of a basic, basic, basic idea. Um, but the point is... When volatility elevates, the price of options goes up because one of several components of an option, and an option is priced uh, by the amount of time that's left in an option um, and by the amount of volatility uh, in the option, among a couple other things. Um, but you'll see the cost of the option rise as volatility elevates. So as the VIX goes up, the price of options intrinsically also goes up too which means it's more appealing to sell options, to write options, but usually it's more volatile market conditions, so you never know when you're going to get absolutely curb-stomped, especially if you're selling naked options, um, which I don't recommend, and I really don't recommend doing any of this at all. For the purposes of this discussion, the point I'm trying to make, though, is that the market is pricing in volatility, 
because it has been volatile. You've seen swings in the indices, 2%, 3% in a day. Those are enormous moves for an index. For an index to move 3% is a huge, huge, huge move because you have to take into account the fact that an index is made up of hundreds, if not thousands of components. And for them, you know, all to, you know, the majority of names that have to push all in one direction to get an index to move 3% is substantial. So at the beginning of my article today, you can look even before the paywall, uh, Zero Hedge always posts the New York Stock Exchange tick indicator. Uh, I put that up, and the tick indicator is essentially the number of uh, stocks that are going up minus the number of stocks that are going down. Uh, it's comparable to like counting cards almost. Uh, the cumulative tick is comparable almost to counting cards in a blackjack game. But a simple way to think of it is the number of stocks going up minus the number of stocks going down. Um, and so the tick indicator was plus 2100 at the open on Tuesday. Now, normally minus a thousand or plus a thousand is oversold or overbought. Um, and so a plus 2100 tick at the open is like twice what is widely known to be overbought sentiment. Um, and Zero Hedge actually posted that it's the second highest tick number in history, which means that on Tuesday, sentiment was screamingly bullish. It also means that, you know, the higher that tick number goes, the more likely you're going to see a whipsaw back in the other direction. So just like a lot of like simple technical indicators like the RSI, um, you know, the further and further and further you go into oversold or overbought territory, the more likely it is that eventually you're going to swing back. Uh, I don't really like technical indicators too much, but for the purposes of what I was trying to say in this article, I thought the tick indicator was interesting because what it shows is just a full-on foot fucking gas pedal to the floor in the New York Stock Exchange on Tuesday. So sentiment, you know, the market came out fucking screaming Monday and Tuesday. And so what I wanted to do was kind of put this stuff in perspective. You know, I wanted to say, look, first off, zoom out. Take a look at a longer trend. And you can see, you know, a chart of the Dow that I put in the article specifically that shows it going back about a year. And you can see the Dow is in a pretty ugly looking downtrend. Uh, it's below its moving averages. It's below the 50. It's below the 200. It, you know, like I said, I'm not watch, not one for technical analysis, but the chart is kind of gnarly. Uh, and so the point I wanted to make is if you zoom out and you look at this chart, there's plenty of instances where the market did pop higher, and then ultimately it just continued to make a lower low. And I just want people to be cognizant of that as they see the market scream here for two days. Because in essence, what it could be, and what I personally think it is, is is a little bit of a fake out. Um, and these kind of bear market rallies have a tendency to entice unsophisticated investors, right? You know, even from like June through like mid-August, the Dow rallied. It went from 30,000 all the way up to 34,000 again, only to come back down to 28,000. So if you were buying it all the way up thinking, hey, the bottom's here, this, you know, the inflation nonsense is over, the Fed's going to pivot, whatever, 
you wound up getting shellacked over the course of, you know, three or four months. Ultimately, you still lost money despite the 12% uh, gain over the summer. So the point is, zoom out and kind of look at this shit in perspective. Let's just take a breath here. So the market moved higher, in my opinion, uh, as a little bit of a bear market rally. Uh, because we had so much volatility to the downside, it was kind of due to whip back up. I mean, literally, the market went from the Dow went from thirty four thousand two hundred about in middle of August to twenty eight thousand uh, in like two months, and pretty much nonstop. There was one little part in September where we rallied a little bit, but it's pretty much been a straight line down since the middle of August. So the point I wanted to make was like, hey, you know, the market's due for a fucking breather here. We can't just go straight, straight down. Although at some point, I think we will see capitulation, as I've said. But let's just stop and refocus and reframe. And that was some of the things that I talked about in the article today. Plus, you had this uh, rumor going around, essentially. Although it was more than a rumor. There's been a couple of headlines that have gone around, but the headlines haven't been super uh, substantive that the Fed is going to consider a pivot akin to the way that the Bank of England pivoted last week. So somebody at a pension fund shit themselves and made a phone call to the Bank of England, used the magic words, Lehman moment, clicked their heels together three times, and all of a sudden we were back to quantitative easing from the Bank of England, just like that. And Peter Schiff actually made a good point on Friday or over the weekend when he did his podcast which is that the Bank of England was just as hawkish and just as set in stone. Their message was just as stoic and just as set in, so, set in stone sounding, at least, as every bit, every bit as much as what Jerome Powell's has been. And Schiff's point was that at some point the Fed will cave too. Look, I happen to think that he's right. I do think the Fed will cave, but the question is when. So... There was all these rumors about Credit Suisse over the weekend, too. There's still been a couple of ugly headlines today about Credit Suisse. Are they going to be the next blow-up? Yes, no, who cares? The point is, there's a little bit of talk bubbling up, okay, about maybe some systemic risk, another term that people like to throw around when they're looking for a scapegoat to intervene and bail out the rich, essentially. Well, there was systemic risk. We had to, you know print another two trillion with inflation so by the way when your fucking cost of milk is going up 15 percent a year you know nobody cares about that no one gives a shit that pales in comparison to if credit suisse has you know 20 years of bad business that they've been doing and shitty trades and that catches up to them at some point well that automatically takes precedent so you can go fuck yourself love the banks <laughs> that's the way it works. Remember the Goldman hearings after the financial crisis? Sir, could you read from the email? Yes, it says that was one shitty deal. Yeah, and you were selling this to your clients, right? Yes, we were. What exactly did you guys mean by one shitty deal? <laughs> oh, we meant it was really good. At least that's what we were telling the clients. Hey, buy this. This is one great deal. I'm sorry, did I say that? I was supposed to warn you up front, this is a shitty deal. But please, buy as much as you want, single file, no pushing, limit two per person, 
But essentially, that's it. You know, Credit Suisse fucked up somewhere along the line, and I don't know what it is. You know, what is it? Is it currency swaps? Is it fucking options on donuts in Belgium? (laughs) Somebody fucked up the work somewhere, you know? It's in one of those offices. Some guy had some idea. This is exactly what happened. Some guy had some idea in, like, 2012. I guarantee you this is what happened. And he was like, you know, this is like pension funds taking on leverage to meet their obligations. I was talking about this with Jason Burak. If you didn't listen to my interview on Wall Street for Main Street, it's on my uh, sub stack. Link's in the podcast description. But this is what I was talking to him about. You know, I'm saying, look, the pension funds in the U.S. are in trouble, too. All I've watched over the last 10 years is pension funds lever up to try to make the world's worst carry trade with the world's worst chief investment officers and try to bail themselves out of a hole, which they shouldn't even be in because the market's been screaming for the last 10 years, but they can't meet their obligations because they won't tell people to contribute less. You know, again, goes back to the same problem as the Fed, just generally being cowards, unable to face the truth. But the point is, you know, these pension funds decided, hey, the rates are at zero. We'll just lever up, man. We'll just let the fucking problem solved. And I guarantee you, some chief investment officer somewhere got a bonus. And it was heralded as a brilliant idea. And I know, I know I read some Wall Street Journal article about the city of Chicago, whose pension funds did this. And they were like, you know, the quote from the CIO and from the governor or whoever was like, oh, this is a great idea and this is going to help people from Chicago. It's like, no, it's not. No, it's not. It's just taking on debt and patching things up. And it's only going to make things worse when the check comes due, which, by the way, seems to be right about now. But the point of the matter is that these pension funds take on leverage and pass it out as a brilliant idea. And I guarantee you, in a Credit Suisse office somewhere, some coked up guy in a Patagonia vest came up with an idea of, you know, somehow taking on more risk, whatever it is, you know. FX swaps, currency lines, equity derivatives, over-the-counter fucking cattle future options, filling up a 55-gallon drum with gasoline and then trying to resell it like they did in It's Always Sunny. (laughs) You got to just keep the money moving around in a circle, you know? Somebody came up with some idea that at its core was a way to take on more risk, and they pitched it to somebody somewhere and said, you know what? Hey, man, this would be a great way to add some numbers to our bottom line. And look, we dropped the calculations. There's basically no risk. And if there is risk, we don't have to deal with it now because rates are always going to be at zero forever. And nothing's ever going to – we're never going to see any Five Sigma moves in the FX markets or in the equity markets. It's basically risk-free. It's risk-free risk. And the guy, I'm sure, was heralded as some type of genius. Definitely received a fat-ass fucking bonus for whatever the idea was. And now the check again has come due. I don't know what the problem is, but there's a likely, and I'm just speculating. I don't know any of this for certain. But in my opinion, there is likely some ticking time bomb somewhere in, uh, in Credit Suisse. And we'll find out about it in time just as we will find out about the pension fund disasters that I think are unfolding in the U.S. in time. 
But at least for this weekend, people were able to put it aside, right? We There was all this chatter over the weekend on social media about, hey, like systemic risk and this and that and the other. And then all of a sudden, Monday came around. Nobody really wanted to talk about it anymore, and the market ripped. And so when that happens, everybody just kind of thinks, oh, well, everything's okay, even if it isn't. So if the stock market is sending a signal that it's a risk-on environment, which is a nice fucking jargony way for just saying stocks go up. Stocks go up. And so we're having a risk-on. Today is a risk-on trade, Scott Wapner. Thanks for having me on CNBC. Yes, are you are you long risk or short risk? Just a million ways just saying, are you buying stocks or are you selling stocks? That's it. Don't let the jargon, the bullshit fool you. Risk assets generally are like aggressive growth stocks, right? So when people say we're adding risk, what are you adding? You're adding growth stocks, Bitcoin, all kinds of nonsense and bullshit. Defensive stocks are literally defensive stocks. Oil, fucking shit with single digit PEs, which is, you know, there's like four companies left. Staple stocks, those are kind of defensive stocks. But next time you hear somebody, it's a risk on day. What does it mean? It means we're literally putting risk on our balance sheet. We are taking on risk. That's all risk on means. You know, it took me like fucking five years to figure that out. But, you know, I'm a slow learner. By the way, I just figured out how to do the super lock on my jujitsu belt, you know, which is like a way of tying your jujitsu belt. I mean, I've been fucking, you know, I'm going on five years training i just figured out how to tie my belt so i'm a slow learner and maybe you guys are too it must have to do with the paps blue ribbon the point of the matter stay with me here folks the point of the matter here is that everybody kind of you know monday tuesday even today now with this big intraday swing people thinking is the bottom in look the fucking bottom's not in all right in my opinion i think we still need to see some real capitulation And the key here is the Fed. And what I wrote about today is even in an environment where the Fed pivots now, say the say the Fed came out tomorrow and said, we're going to, you know, we're going to stop hiking, which would be really that would be considered a pivot, even though it's not like a super dovish thing because rates are still at, you know, three and a half percent or whatever. But say the Fed came out and did that. The train wreck has already started in the background. You know, the interest expenses are accruing. The economy is crunching to a halt like one of those semi-trucks that hits a wall in slow motion. And, you know, like an accordion, it starts to fucking compress. That's what's going on. That's what we're in the midst of. Um, We're just kind of waiting for it to play out. So it doesn't really matter whether the Fed hikes or whether it fucking cuts or whether Jerome Powell has a tuna salad sandwich for lunch today. A lot of the damage is already done. We just haven't seen it yet. So that, I think, is coming. Um, But, you know, really, one of the things that I wrote about this morning is think about what, what you would need to accept if you believe this was the bottom. You would have to, you would have to accept that at a Schiller PE of 28, let's just call, let's call the S&P PE of 20 right now just for the purposes of this discussion even though it's above 20 let's just say the S&P is at a 20 PE right now and market cap to GDP is like 40% above historical norms right now you would have to accept that something fundamentally has changed 
so that these levels, this, these valuation levels, this price to earnings ratio, which by the way, you know, a PE of 20 used to be like the top of cycles. <laughs> the, the mean I think is 13. Okay. You would have to somehow accept that something changed so profoundly that 20 is the new 13, right? We are, we are rewriting what deep value looks like now. Deep value looks like a PE of 20. And this is all the garbage that Kathy Wood and other Mensa candidates, you know, have come out and said in order to talk their book, which is full of growth crap. And in Kathy Wood's case is down, I don't know, 60% this year or something just lovely. They want, they need to convince you that this is, you know, this is a bottom. And in order to do that, if you really want to try to make that argument, you think to yourself, all right, well, how do you make up the difference between the historical mean, the historical valuation mean on a market cap to GDP basis, on a PE basis, and where we are now? How do you justify, you know, where's the cushion? Where's the, uh, you know, where's the cushion from 13 to 20 that you get? And the, the best argument for that is we're in a new age of monetary policy. Uh, you know, we're in an MMT world where the rules don't apply anymore and the Fed has excess infinite liquidity. And so we're entering a new, you know, technology epoch or some bullshit. I don't know what kind of fucking garbage, what kind of bilge people have to come up with in order to try to justify that. But the point is you have to kind of, you would have to square that circle in your head. You'd have to make sense of that in your head. Like, okay, 20, a PE of 20 is the new bottom. That's what people that are calling the bottom now are thinking. And these headlines pass every day. I'm not just making shit up. The last three days, there's been individual stock pickers on TV and on Twitter. There's also been economists and people saying the bottom's in. This guy thinks the bottom is in in the market. Turn around and buy. It's time to get bullish again. Inflation has topped out. The Fed's getting ready to pivot. The bottom is in. I'm like, look, the fucking bottom is not at a PE of 20. I mean, maybe this does become the foundation and proves me wrong. And we launch to, you know, new not only new highs, but new multiple highs, right? Maybe an aggressive bull market looks like a like an average PE of 60, when it, you know, when it used to look like 30 or 35, right? We're, we're literally redefining booms and busts and what bubbles look like. So maybe that'll happen and prove me wrong. But don't call it the bottom. I mean, call it a spot maybe to be opportunistic about buying certain names, a spot to maybe pepper in, you know, select risk, you know, but the idea that we've had all of these crazy bear markets and the the mean that the S&P gets down to is 13 and now all of a sudden where we have accelerated interest rates the fastest and the most that we have at any time in recent history and the economy has barely had a chance to catch up and the stock market has barely had a chance to catch up with that and that there will be a day of reckoning I still think no matter what the Fed does now and you know, you want to say, okay, well, this is the bottom now. Ah, I don't think so. Not quite sure we have felt the pain or the fear necessary to even think at least about a psychological bottom. I mean, my article this morning was about fundamentals. 
the reason I wanted to add some perspective to the situation is because the fundamentals aren't saying bottom. The fundamentals are telling me we need another 30% drop from here. And the psychological part of the market, at least from what I know of, you know, 10 years of losing money and drinking beer, which are two things I'm proud to say I'm an expert in, the psychological angle has to change. The There needs to be panic. You know, in March 2020, in April, you know, the COVID bottom came when the Fed pivoted. But then you got to remember, markets didn't come right back up after that. They were still volatile. And then Ackman went on TV and had his hell is coming moment where basically he was saying on live national television that if we don't get the thing under control, Western civilization as we know it is going to end and all of humanity on Earth is going to end. How's that for a bear case? That was the bottom that day. When you hear some shit like that, you know, when you hear things like people may never recover, you know, U.S. banks are at risk. Uh, I don't know. You see people clearing out their desks and taking the boxes out like they did during Lehman. Something like that needs to happen. It needs to happen in crypto, too. Like, you know, I mean, there's some big fucking piece of news, and you'll know when you hear it. Trust me. I don't want to try to speculate because I don't want to get sued by anybody. <laughs> but there will be a big piece of news somewhere, an oh shit moment where you say, holy fuck, you know, some major corporation will be revealed to be committing, you know, egregious fraud. Or the market will go down, you know, 2,000, the Dow will go down 2,000 points in a day and set a record, you know, tw- two days in a row. Some gnarly, wicked shit that when you're sitting through it, you're going to be thinking to yourself, wow, I'm living through some history right now. That's when you start thinking, all right, now I'll take a glance at what the S&P multiple is. But for right now, you have to kind of take this for what I think it is, which is just a short-term pop, even with today's you know, kind of reversal, today's intraday reversal off the lows, you kind of got to take it with a grain of salt, in my opinion. So that's what my article this morning explored. Now, let's talk about why this time it might be different, and not in a good way. (laughs) This really could be a major challenge to Western civilization as we know it, and I'm not trying to be bombastic, and I'm not trying to fucking be sensationalist or cause a panic. But what have we been talking about over the last year since Russia went into Ukraine? I'll tell you after this four-second drink break. What we've been talking about is the BRIC nations, Brazil, India, China, Russia, all getting together and collectively saying fuck you to the West's sanctions after Russia went into Ukraine and saying, all right, well, fuck it, we're going to do it on our own now. We're going to start our own fucking economy. We're going to trade with each other. We've got the productive capacity. We've got the commodities. And we've got the leverage on the West because all they do is buy shit from us with their fiat. And so these nations have kind of grouped together in order to try to stick it to the West. And so far, I think they're doing a pretty good job. (laughs) (laughs) So putting aside, you know, the volatility from Russia going into Ukraine, putting aside your feelings on, you know, the war. If you haven't listened to it, go back and listen to my last podcast with Andy Schechtman. 
because he lays it out beautifully as to what could be going on here. And I agree with him, and I know he agrees with me, which is that these BRIC nations are basically setting up to challenge the U.S. dollar on a global stage. And as we all know, the only thing that is propping up the U.S. dollar is the fact that it's accepted as the global reserve currency. So people dash to dollars when there's volatility. And we've seen a lot of strength in the dollar, not only because of people going to it due to volatility, but also because um, why, dickhead? Come on, you just had it on the top of your head a second ago. Why are people going to the fucking dollar? The dollar, the dollar. Think, 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 think. Uh, oh, because they believe that because <laughs> they believe that this, you know, interest rate hikes from the Fed is going to work and that inflation is going to come down and that will rein in the money supply. And so, you know, the market is kind of saying, all right, that's going to bring strength back to the dollar when the Fed eases, the dollar weakens. So it's a combination of people flocking to the dollar for volatility purposes um, but also because they believe that, you know, that the Fed's tightening is going to work. So they'll be in, uh, obviously, for a fucking surprise at some point. But the only thing that makes it the asset to go to, the world reserve currency, as Schechtman noted, was, you know, the fact that uh, we had offered protection to the Saudi kingdom back in, you know, the 70s and or the 80s, whenever it was. I'm not a history major. Do your research elsewhere, fools. The point is, at some point, we said to Saudi Arabia will protect you as long as you transact your oil in U.S. dollars and U.S. dollars only, which, of course, sets the dollar up to be the major player on the global stage. Um, and now what we're seeing is Saudi Arabia allying itself with Russia and China and India. And so they kind of hold the keys as to how the dollar is transacted globally because, you know, there's so much money moves around in the oil markets. So when we tried to put the sanctions on Russia and we tried to tank the ruble, you know, Russia said, fuck you, basically, because at the end of the day, we have the productive capacity to make the oil, right? And China has the productive capacity to make, you know, your fucking live, laugh, love sign that's hanging up in your kitchen, that everybody must have from Marshalls because some days I need a reminder to live. I can't just do it on my own. I can't just breathe. I can't be the same decaying organic manner as everybody else. My biological clock necessitates that I wouldn't sign with that same douchey bridesmaid font on it tells me to live and to laugh. I don't laugh when things are funny. I laugh when I look at a fucking sign next to my other sign in my kitchen that says Bistro because I've never been to France, but I saw this sign in Marshalls and it looks like it's from France. So when I go to my French kitchen, which is really an American kitchen with a sign with one word in French, is Bistro French? It's Italian, I think, actually. Doesn't matter. The point is, you've never been to Europe. You've only been to Marshalls, you fucks. And you don't need a sign <laughs> to remind you to live, laugh, or love. But you buy them, and it's just one of many wonderful items that take up space that you eventually wind up moving to a storage unit somewhere because you've amassed so much shit in your house that you have run out of space 
and need to rent another space to put the rest of your shit in instead of just throwing things out because you can't bear to part with some fucking coffee mug that you got in the year 1983. But anyways, all that shit that you have in your storage unit right now, China has made a bunch of that shit. And we need it. We don't actually need it. We think we need it. I don't know why we think we need it. I don't own a lot of things, and I'm happy about that. But people think that we need things. And those things come from China. And actually, there's some quite serious things that come from China, too. You remember during COVID, we were trying to get ingredients for some pharmaceuticals. And uh, we couldn't get them because they were coming from China. We get a lot of shit from China. A lot. And so China has said, look, we make all the shit that you pay us dollars for. You pay us, you know, basically in debt. You, you fucking hand us our own money back to us in dollars. And Russia has all the oil. So Russia says, all right, we're going to sell the oil to China. We're gonna, China says, all right, we're going to buy these strategic oil assets. India's in there. It's one big incestuous brick nation love fest. And all of a sudden, meanwhile, also, too, you know, China is debuting its central bank digital currency, the yuan, which I continue to believe they will back with gold. I've been saying that for years now. All these countries are stockpiling gold, too, while we're at it. They started you know, a decade ago in this process of trying to de-dollarize. And basically the stage is set for a big challenge to the dollar. And this is essentially war. I mean, it may not be physical war, but it's essentially war. I mean, it's a cold war and it's a big one because it's not just us and Russia. It's us, you know, it's the West versus the Brick Nations. It's a major, you know, Jesus-style parting of the seas uh, in the global economy. You got all these massive nations, all right, you know, we're going to stick together. India, you know, 62 trillion people crammed into every square mile in India. Those people are consumers. They would like to have shit, I'm sure. They need things there. I'm sure China, Russia could strike a deal with them. You have these major nations all working together now. You have oil contracts that are now settling in the yuan, right? And you have essentially the ruble has come back to where it was pre-sanctions, which just goes to show you we fired a, you know, a hollow bullet, a blank round when we tried to put these sanctions on. So now the world knows, you know, <laughs> we're shooting blanks. We don't have anything. You know, what we needed was the opposite. We needed an actual bullet when, you know, people thought there wasn't going to be one. The Alec Baldwin approach to the global economy. But what we got was a bunch of talk about how we were going to fire a silver bullet. And what we really fired was, you know, akin to somebody sitting on a whoopee cushion. You know, it was just that was it. And so now we have this face-off, and let's talk about President Biden, who is feeling the consequences of his own actions, <laughs> and really the actions of the last administration, too. I don't want to just blame Biden, because the Trump administration fucked up the works here a lot, too, with the way that the pandemic was handled. 
But you have Joe Biden. Think about what an outside observer must be thinking here, right? Joe Biden basically vilifies U.S. oil companies, right? That's the first thing he does. He says we need to ban fossil fuels at a time where on a global stage, we have the least amount of access to fossil fuels elsewhere that we've probably ever had. <laughs> All right, that's fucking step one. Then he goes and depletes our strategic petroleum reserve, much of which is there for dire emergencies and to the best of my understanding, in case we need it for military conflicts. And he starts dipping into that because he can't bear to watch the free market set the price of gas because it hurts for the average American and that hurts his prospects of getting reelected. So it's by any means necessary, throw a Band-Aid on the situation. So he goes and he starts emptying the strategic petroleum reserve. Right? So, that's so imagine being an outside observer. Imagine being a fucking, you know, imagine being the president of another country and watching this, right? We're, we're at an energy crunch. Oil prices are going up. We need more supply. Biden turns around and vilifies his own oil companies and basically says, we need to get rid of them. We need to get rid of fossil fuels at the worst possible time. You know, it's 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 like it's like being stuck. It's like holding your breath underwater for like five minutes, and right before the point when you're about to drown, just starting to make a case for, hey, you know what? We gotta get rid of fucking oxygen. We don't really need it that much. <laughs> it's like you need the oxygen right now, asshole, or you'll be dead. But that's essentially what's happening, right? Empties the SPR which should just be the PR. There's nothing strategic about the way that we're managing these reserves. And then, instead of producing oil and gas here, decides he's going to fly over to kiss the ass of Mohammed bin Salman, who Biden was railing against, you know, a year or two or three ago for murdering a journalist and a guy whose social agenda doesn't quite seem to line up with the social agenda of the progressive party here in the United States. I got to tell you, for a fucking administration that spends a lot of time talking about making sure that everybody gets addressed by the proper pronouns and trying to make the argument that men can conceive children and that women have penises, for that administration, it certainly seems... (laughs) Certainly seems like an odd thing to do to fly overseas and kiss the ass of the Saudis who, you know, basically don't accept gay people, you know, and have these major human rights violations on the records. So instead of saying, hey, let's just go with Chevron on this one because we like them and we know they're Americans. And hey, maybe there's some guys from Texas that didn't vote for us. You know, but fuck, man, we need Chevron on our side right now because we're proper fucked right now and we need the oil. So maybe we just incentivize the say, hey, Chevron, man, you guys aren't that bad. Why don't you fill up those tanks we got? Why don't you go ahead and drill? Just go ahead and do it. You know, here's the land. Here's whatever you need. Let's get the red tape out of the way. Instead of doing that, turns around and kisses the ass of Mohammed bin Salman, goes over there and fucking fist bumps him like he's fucking J.R. Smith subbing out of a fucking playoff game. 
<laughs> he goes over and he fist bumps Mohammed bin Salman. And like two months later, <laughs> two months later, OPEC says, eh, we're going to cut production. The whole point of the trip was to go over and to beg OPEC to produce more oil. Biden's thinking, hey, these guys have control of the oil spigot. We need prices to come down. We need more supply. I don't have the balls or, you know, the approval from uh, Rashida Tlaib or whoever he takes his cues from to go and ask Chevron to do it. So I'm going to fly overseas and ask Saudi Arabia and OPEC to pump more oil, right? They have a little fucking tea and crumpets. You know, the princes show up, Biden shows up, you get the photo op, you get the fist bump. Two months later, oil oil comes down from, you know, 120 to 80, which is still, you know, a pretty legit serious bid for oil at $80 a barrel. That's a serious price compared to the fact that we were at negative $30 a barrel two years ago. Biden just starts to, you know, count count the dub, basically. He just starts to take credit for the dub on oil prices coming down a little bit. You know, hey, guys, things aren't that terrible. Gas has gone from $7 a gallon to $6 a gallon at the, at the pump. I'm working on it, you know. I'm working on Putin's price hike. I went over. I talked to MBS. It's cool. I fuck with MBS, you know. I fist bumped him. Did that thing, and two months later, the f- fucking OPEC serves him up a shit burger with fucking cheese in the form of not cutting, in the form of cutting production when Biden specifically asked them not to. <laughs> you went and cut production when I specifically asked you not to? Yes. That is a signal. It says we don't really give a fuck about what you think. It says we don't give a fuck that you guys are dealing with higher gas prices. And we don't give a fuck about you trying to get reelected. And by the way, obviously, we're not friends. So that was a fake fist bump. A faux fist bump, if you will. It was a photo op. MBS gets to say I hung out with the most powerful man in the world for now. And Biden gets to say, look, I did something and I'm trying to help with the price of oil. But here we are. The stark reality hits us on October 5th, 2022, when OPEC says, hey, you know what? $80, it's a little low for us. Why don't we cut production and let's see what you guys in Europe and in the West in general do with $110 barrel oil again. So let's see that. So interesting things afoot. But remember that this, you know, double crossing or whatever you want to call it, it's not even a double crossing because I don't even think they were friends to begin with. I think it's just a, I think it's just a cross. I think it's just a regular crossing, you know? We don't like you. We're not listening to you. <laughs> he didn't say we were going to, you know, expand supply and then didn't do it. Maybe he did. I don't know. Somebody will have to tell me in the comments. Did MBS say when Biden visited, like, hey, yeah, we'll help you out? It's a crossing. It's either a single crossing or a double crossing. The point is, the guy that crossed him happens to be 
the man who is a, in control of the kingdom that is propping up the idea of the U.S. petrodollar. And please go listen to Andy Sheckman talk about this on the last podcast I did with him. He lays the whole thing out. So now you have all these nations that have hoarded gold and are working together, clearly projecting, and by the way, have also said they're starting their own reserve currency. Not a lot of tea leaf reading necessary there when they come out and say they're doing it. Not much to analyze there, folks. Hope you guys are paying close attention. It's in the fucking headline. (laughs) We're starting our own reserve currency. You have that going on. And now you have Biden looking for a little charity and OPEC saying, hey, you know what, bub? You know what, Jack? Go throw rocks is basically what they're telling him. And so it's another brick in the wall for the argument that we are at a serious inflection point in terms of what the global economy is going to look like going forward. You know, the, the is the fate of the petrodollar in the hands of MBS? Because if it is, it's not looking particularly good, in my opinion. You have that shifting global economic landscape on top of the fact that we are basically embarrassing ourselves. I don't really know how else to put it. Draining the SPR, blaming gas station owners <laughs> for the rising price of oil. Let me make this one real fucking simple for you, okay? When you own a gas station, you go out and you buy a tanker truck full of fucking gas, okay? That gas comes from a refinery. You pay that guy a certain price, and then what you do is you mark that price up a little bit, and you put it on your sign, and you make a margin, Right? If the price that you're paying for the gas to put it in your storage tanks goes up, you're going to have to raise your price in order to maintain the same margin. That's what's happening. They're not buying fucking refined gasoline for the same price they were buying it in April 2020 and then marking up the price on their signs. <laughs> it's costing them more. Okay, So maybe don't blame the gas station owners. Maybe have a look in the mirror. Find me the guy that vilified the U.S. oil and gas industry while we were in the midst of an energy crisis. Find that guy for me if you want to blame somebody. Step one, locate the closest mirror. There he is. Ah, why don't you have a talk with that guy? So you have all that going on. You know, we're over here worried about whether or not men and women can be women and men, whether or not women can have penises, men can have vaginas, things like that. Very important things, which by the way, if you're a libertarian like me, you don't care. You want to be a guy that dresses like a girl. You want to be a girl that dresses like a guy. You want to be a guy that dresses like a fucking hamster. You want to be a hamster that dresses like a human being. I don't care. I support all of it. You know, (laughs) I don't think it's the government's job to deal with any of that. So it's ludicrous to me Because it's like, what are we spending our time talking about? All right, fine. Let people handle their identities in the privacies of their home and let them be whoever they want to be. All right? But that's what we're talking about now when we have what really looks to be an unprecedented shift in the global economy with inflation at, you know, very close to record highs. They would be probably record highs if we measured it the same way we used to in the 70s. 
the lower and middle class in the country getting brutalized, getting absolutely curb stomped with rising prices. You have a Fed that just hiked interest rates the most and the quickest it has at any point in the near, you know, recent history with the most amount of debt outstanding ever in recent history, all of which hinges on the dollar remaining the reserve currency, which the BRIC nations are actively and openly challenging right before our eyes. It's really unprecedented. And we can't get a fucking limit down day in the market. Can you believe that? (laughs) So it's like going into COVID when I just kept saying like, hey, it's just going to get worse. It's just going to get worse. It's just going to get worse. And I had like a month of people telling me I was a fear monger and an idiot. Ah, And then we woke up one day and the market was down fucking 8% one morning. And everybody was looking around like, why didn't we see this? It's like, we saw it. Some of us saw it. Just like some of us are seeing this now. When the rest of you are going to see it, that remains to be seen. When the Biden administration is going to see it, I don't know. I don't know if they're ever going to see it. Even if it punches them in the face, they will find the wrong person to blame and the wrong solution. I guarantee you. I guarantee I guarantee you if, like, Kim Jong-un launched, you know, a nuke at the United States and we knew it was him and we could prove it, I guarantee you our government would turn around and blame Finland, you know, or like something completely total non sequitur. Well, let me tell you something, Jack. Finland engineered the ball bearings that were on the wheels of the thing that they used to take the missile to the launch site before they pointed it directly at us and launched it. We need to talk to Finland. It's like, no, we need to talk to fucking fat boy that hit the launch button. I guarantee you. They will blame the wrong person. They will come up with the wrong solution. So that's where we are today. That's why I felt the need to do a little podcast, talk about some of this fun stuff. Are you guys having fun yet? Are you guys having fun while we napalm Western society in the background? I'm having fun. I'm having a fucking blast. What did Dennis Leary say in his one thing? He's like, I'm wearing a huge happy hat. (laughs) I'm having a good time. I'm wearing a huge happy hat right now. I have other things to do this evening. That's a lie. But uh, I'm done talking anyways. So uh, thanks for listening. And make sure you check out my kind friends at Masterworks, my kind friends at Market Rebellion, Sang Lucci Trading, George Gammon and Doomberg, and anybody I forgot. All of us here at Enderby and Friends. The links are all in the podcast description, Jack. All right? I like that. Check. <laughs> you know, in like the 1830s, that was a curse word. That's why he always says that. You know, listen up here, Jack. Let me tell you something, Jack. (laughs) It's like, that's not a curse anymore. You can say dickhead. It's the year 2020 if you want to curse. You know, if you said that to somebody in like the 1820s, it immediately led to a duel. You know, where you both had to draw your revolvers. This man called this man Jack in public. Dun, dun, dun. Take 20 paces and turn and draw. Listen up here, Jack. (laughs) Oh, Christ. I got things to do. I'm out of here. Hey, thanks for listening. QTR Podcast. I actually have guests lined up this month. I'm doing things. I swear. Make sure you come back. Click all my links. Sign up for my Substack, Please. Please. I'm trying to buy a thimble full of rice to eat for dinner tonight. 
please subscribe. I'm desperate. All my all my haters always say he he's desperate. He's hawking a newsletter. Yes, I am. I'm desperate. I'm the worst, ladies and gentlemen. Take it from my critics. Everything they say is true. I'm terrible. All right. I think I'm done. I'm going to go watch college football. Peace.